Waha! And I'm back. Did you miss me? I hope so. In any case, the reason I took a short break from the podcast was to meet a writing deadline for a new occult journal that I'm contributing to, as well as the fact, in addition, I was having a lot of problems with my old computer here that's been serving me wonderfully, and much love goes out to uh, the person who gave it to me. Uh, connecting with the mics. It's not been connecting with the mics, so that's been uh, awkward and slowed me down a lot. And uh, some days when it would connect, I'd have to like restart, like restart the computer 30, 40 times. Jesus Christ, take, uh, you know, life. <laughs> All right. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I know you shouldn't laugh, right? But it's good. I swear I'm not a bad person. Oh my god, that's too delightful. I'm just, I'm not going to redo all this. I'm just going to leave that in. Uh, well, I'm going to finish off Franz Barden's, or Franz Hartman's Magic White and Black, which I never intended to do the entire book, but so many people really enjoyed it that I kept going and I kept getting comments, enjoying it. So. I've basically done the whole thing now, and you will hear that in a minute. Um, I guess good time to remind you all that there's a donation feature for anyone who wants to contribute to me getting a a new computer uh, and support my work so I can get back to it and uh, give you all what you want, what you really, really want. But first, a child screaming. Light, Chapter 11, Let There Be Light, The Bible. Form, personality, and sensuality are the death of spirit. The dissolution of form, loss of personality, and unconsciousness of sensuous perceptions render spirit free and restore it to life. The elementary forces of nature bound to forms become the prisoners of the forms. Being entombed in matter... They lose their liberty of action and move only in obedience to external impulses. And more, they cling to form. The more dense, compact, heavy, and dull will they become, and the less will be self-acting and free. Sunlight and heat are comparatively free. Their elements travel from planet to planet until they are absorbed by earthly forms. Crystallized into matter, they sleep in trees and forests and fields of coal until they are liberated by the slow decomposition of form or forcibly set free by the god of fire. The waves of ocean and lake play joyfully with the shore. Full of mirth, they throw their spray upon the lazy rocks. The laughing waters of the wandering brook glide restlessly through forest and field, dancing and whirling, and playing with the flowers that grow by the side of their road. They rush without fear over the precipices, falling in cascades over the mountainsides, uniting, dividing, and uniting again, mingling with rivers and resting, at last, for a while in the sea. But when winter arrives, and King Frost puts his icy hand upon their faces, they crystallize into individual forms. They are then robbed of their freedom, and, like the damsels and knights of the enchanted castle, they are doomed to sleep until the warm breath of youthful spring breaks the spell of the sorcerer and kisses them back into life. 
the fundamental laws of nature are the same in all her departments, and man forms no exception to the general rule. He is a center around which some of the intelligent, as well as some of the unintelligent forces, have crystallized into a form, bound by the laws of the karma which that center created, they are doomed to dwell in a form and to partake of the accidents to which forms are exposed. Imprisoned in a personality, they partake of the sufferings which the tendencies of that personality have called into existence. They may be exposed to desires whose thirst increases in proportion as they are furnished with drink, to passions whose fire burns hotter in proportion as their demand for fuel is granted. They are tempted to run after shadows that ever fly, to grasp at hopes that ever beckon and vanish as soon as they are approached, to sorrows that enter the house, although the doors may be closed against them, to fears whose form have no substance, to illusions that despair only with the life of the form. Like Prometheus bound to a rock, the impersonal spirit is chained to a personality, until the consciousness of his Herculean power awakes in him, and, bursting his chains, he becomes, again, free. Not all the elements that go to make up a complete man are enclosed in his material form. The far greater part of them is beyond the limits of his physical body. The latter is merely a center in which those invisible elements meet. The elements that exist beyond stand in intimate relation with those that are within, although the elements within the form may not seem to be conscious of the existence of those beyond, still they act and react upon each other. The character of man is far more important than his physical form. Thought can create a form, but no form can produce a thought and yet the substance of thought is invisible as long as it has not clothed itself in a form. Air exists within and beyond the physical body. It is invisible, and yet it is an important element of the body. A man who could not breathe would be very incomplete. The ocean of mind in which man exists is as necessary to his soul life as the air is to his body. He cannot breathe if deprived of air. He cannot think if deprived of mind. The outer acts upon the inner, the inner upon the outer, the above upon the below, and the little upon the great. A man who could live independent of his surroundings would be self-existent. He would be a god. The spirit is not confined by the form. It only overshadows the form. The form does not contain the spirit. It is only its outward expression. It is the instrument upon which the spirit plays and which reacts upon its touch while the spirit responds to its vibrations. An ancient proverb says, Everything that exists upon the earth has its ethereal counterpart above the earth, and there is nothing, however insignificant it may appear in the world, which is not depending on something higher, so that if the lower part acts, its preceding higher part reacts upon it. The greatest philosophers in ancient times taught that the noose that alone recognized noumena always remained outside the physical body of man, that it overshadowed his head, and that only the ignorant believed it existed within themselves. 
modern philosophers have arrived at similar conclusions. Fichte writes, The real spirit, which comes to itself in human consciousness, is to be regarded as an impersonal pneuma, universal reason, and the good of man's whole development, therefore, can be no other than to substitute the universal for the individual consciousness. The greatest of all teachers, Gautama Buddha, says, The permanent never mingles with the impermanent, although the two are one. Only when all outward appearances are gone is that one principle of life left, which exists independently of all external phenomena. It is the fire that burns within the external light, when the fuel is expended and the flame is extinguished, for that fire is neither in the flame nor in the fuel, nor yet inside either of the two, but above, beneath, and everywhere. This real and permanent self is an impersonal principle. Hermes Trismegistus says, His father is the sun, his mother, the stars, and his body, the generations of men. It is not attracted into the physical body of man, but the soul of man may unite itself with that principle. It is the real ego of every person, and the person who succeeds to merge his personality into that ego is thereby rendered immortal. It is the true and living Christ of the real Christians, not the dead Jesus, but the living Savior who remains with his followers until the end of the world. And every one who unites his own self with that Christ, no matter what his creed or confession may be, will become as true and veritable a Christ as ever lived upon the earth. It is the Logos of the ancients, the Adam Kadmon of the Hebrews, the Osiris of the Egyptians, the Ishwar of the Hindus, the Way, the Light, and the Truth, and the Divine Self of every man and the Redeemer for all. The whole of a man is not enclosed within the small circle that circumscribes his terrestrial life. He who has found the master within himself knows the true insignificance of his own personal self. The life of the latter is made up of a comparatively small number of years passed among the illusions of the terrestrial plane. The life of the former is made up of the essence of a great many of such lives. He has retained of them only that which is useful and grand while the worthless parts have been rejected. He who has once realized the presence of his God laughs at the idea of having ever imagined himself to be something more than a bundle of semi-conscious elements from which the higher self may draw nutriment if it finds anything therein compatible with its own nature. What is all the power and glory of earthly kings compared with the divine man, the king in the realm of the soul? What is all the science of this earth but nonsense if compared with the self-knowledge of the regenerated man? Well may he who has welcomed the Lord in his soul be willing to renounce money, power and fame, terrestrial loves and all the illusions of life, if it can be called renunciation to refuse to touch things upon which one looks with indifference, if not with contempt. How can he who has never seen the image of the true Savior in his heart love him? And how can he who has once beheld it cease to love and adore him with his whole mind and with all the faculties of his soul? Such things are too sacred to be divulged by the Spirit of God to him who is not worthy to receive God in his soul. 
They will not be understood by those who cannot yet rise above limitation. Let those who know the things of which we have attempted to write rejoice and worship in silence. He who has succeeded in merging the elements, constituting his soul with that divine and ethereal higher self, will feel its power in his own heart. This principle baptizes his soul with fire, and he who receives this baptism of fire is ordained a priest and a king. He who is full of its influence is the true vice-regent of God, because the supreme power of the universe acts through its instrumentality. This principle fills his person with a peace which passeth understanding, attracts the heart of men to him, and sheds blessings upon everyone who approaches his presence. It forgives the sins of men by transforming them into other men who have not sinned and need not to be forgiven. It does not require to hear confession to give advice, because it can read the innermost thoughts of every man, and its admonishing voice is heard in the heart that has learned to understand its language. The development of the power to perceive it confirms men's faith by enabling them to recognize that to be true, which they heretofore only believed to be so, and being taught by the truth itself, they can make no mistake. It communicates with man, not by being absorbed by man, but by absorbing the soul of man into itself. It brings the dying to life, because, being immortal, he who is united with it partakes of its own immortality. The marriages it celebrates can never be dissolved, because in this principle all humanity is bound together to one indissoluble whole. To separate from it would be death to the part that separates itself from the whole. The sphere in which this principle still lives is the sphere of eternal life. It is the only true and infallible church, and its power cannot be taken away. This church is truly Catholic, that is to say universal. Nothing can live without its jurisdiction, because nothing can continue to exist without the authority of life. Still, it has no particular name, requires no fee for initiation, no ceremonies or rites. Heathens and infidels may enter it without changing their creed. Opinions cease to exist where the truth is revealed. But this true principle of Christ is not the Christ of popular Christianity. It has long ago been driven away from the modern Christian temples, and an illusion has remained in its place. The money-changers and tradesmen have again taken possession of the temple of mind, sacrificing the lifeblood of the poor at the altars of wooden gods, closing their eyes to the truth and worshipping tinsel, squandering the wealth of nations for the glorification of the self. The true Son of Man is still scoffed at by his nominal followers, traduced by his pretended friends, crucified by men who do not recognize in him the only source of their life, killed by men in their own hearts, ignorantly and foolishly because they do not know what they are doing, and that their own life substance departs at the time when he departs from their life. Modern civilization adores the religion of selfishness and rejects the gospel of love. She debases her own dignity by crouching at the feet of idols, where she would stand up in her own dignity and purity as the queen of the whole creation. Humanity is still dreaming, and has not yet fully awakened to life. 
She searches for a god in her imagination and cannot realize that he can only be found in the truth. Men and women clamor for the coming of a god, and yet this god is ever ready to come to them as soon as he is admitted into their heart by submitting to him their will. This unknown god is attainable to all. He is ever ready to be born in every heart where the conditions for his birth are prepared. He always begins to come to life in a manger between the elemental and animal forces in man. He can only be born in a lowly place, because pride and superstition are his enemies, and in a heart filled with vanity he would soon suffocate. The news of his birth sends a thrill of pleasure through the physical body, and the morning stars sing together for joy, heralding the dawn of the day for the resurrection of the spirit. The three magicians from the east, love, wisdom, and power, appear at the manger and offer their gifts to the newborn babe. If Herodes, the king of pride and ambition, does not succeed in driving it out of the country, it begins to grow, and as it grows, its divinity becomes manifest. It argues with the intellectual powers in the temple of the mind, and silences them by its superior knowledge. It penetrates into mysteries, which intellectuality, born of sensual perceptions, cannot explain. Gray-headed material science, sophistry, hoary with age, old logic based upon misconceptions of fundamental truths give way and are forced to acknowledge the wisdom of the half-grown God. Living in the wilderness of material desires, it is vainly tempted by the devil of selfishness. It cannot be misled by personal considerations, because, being impersonal, it has no personal claims. The devil can give to it nothing that it does not already possess, because, being the highest, it rules over all that is low. This principle is the first emanation of the Absolute. It is the only begotten son of its father, and it is as old as the father, because the manifested Absolute could only become a father at the time when the son was born. Bible, St. John 1.1, Hebrews 1.3 It is the living word, and every man is a Christ, in whom the Son of God becomes manifest. It is the divine self of every man, his own original ethereal counterpart without any infirmities, because the latter only belong to the form. It is not a personality, because it may become individualized in man and yet remain in its essence impersonal, a living principle, ubiquitous, incorruptible, and immortal. This is the great mystery, before which the intellect, reasoning from particulars to universals, stands hopelessly still, but which the soul, whose inner spiritual perceptions are alive, beholds with astonishment and wonder. The spirit is formless and cognizes the formless. The intellect is connected with form and can only behold the formless in the light of the spirit. The intellect deals with the finite and can only grasp the infinite if illuminated by that very principle whose existence is doubted before the illumination took place. As long as the wavering intellect doubts the existence of spirit, it cannot become conscious of its existence because only the steady light of unclouded reason can penetrate into the depths where the spirit resides. Mere belief is a confession of ignorance. True faith is based upon conviction. 
but we cannot be convinced of the existence of something we do not know, and of which we are unconscious, except by becoming conscious of its existence. Consciousness, knowledge, and realization of the existence of something can only begin at the moment when that something begins to become conscious within ourselves. We may search for the God within us, but we cannot artificially bring him to life. We can prepare the conditions under which he may awake to consciousness within ourselves by divesting the mind from all emotional and intellectual predilections and prejudices, and when the divine principle has awakened within us, then has arrived the moment of grace. Such a grace is not a favor conferred by a partial, whimsical, and personal God. It is the effect of a strong desire which has the power to grant its own prayers, and if that desire does not exist, it is useless to pray. As well may an acorn, enclosed in a stone, beg to be developed into an oak, as a man whose heart is filled with desires for the low ask to become conscious of the high. To put implicit belief in the statement of bonds or priest is weakness. To enable ourselves to recognize the truth is strength. To arrive at conviction through knowledge confers the only true faith. Tennyson speaks of the beginning of true faith when he says, We have but faith we cannot know. A beam in darkness, let it grow. We cannot intellectually know. But when the beam has grown, it constitutes spiritual knowledge, which is identical with the living faith. When the divine and impersonal principle begins to become conscious in the personal man, it acts upon him from the five points of attraction, represented by the five-pointed star, and in Christian symbology by the cross. The body begins to feel new sensations. The pulse begins to throb with more vigor. The animal forces stirred up in their hells by the arrival of Christ become more active. Pains may be experienced in the head, the palms of the hands, and the soles of the feet, and in other parts of his body, and the candidate for immortality, whether he be a Christian, a Turk, a Brahmin, a Jew, or an infidel, may thus physically experience the process represented in the martyrdom of Christ. Note, the above remark does not refer to stigmata, which are a result of a state of exalted imagination, while the pains referred to are the result of the penetrating power of the spirit infusing a new life into the physical form. And now, a word from our sponsors. Diving deep into the practices and reality tunnels of the esoteric and the occult, check out Praxis Behind the Obscure podcast, where I interview practicing occultists, do book reviews, and much more. Check us out on YouTube, Red Circle, and many other podcast platforms. While we cannot control whether any ads get put in the spots allocated, we thank you for listening to those that do since they help keep this project alive. You can also get ad-free content and bonus content and videos and a private webpage by subscribing exclusively to magicwithoutfears.com for only a couple dollars a week or $6 a month or 50 for the year. It helps a lot, plus you get emails about other exclusive things. Thank you very much. The interblending of the immortal with the mortal will necessarily cause suffering to the latter until the lower elements are entirely subjugated and rendered unconscious. 
There is no salvation except through suffering. Pains accompany man's entrance into the world. Pains accompany his spiritual regeneration. The low must die so that the high may live. And as the low is gifted with consciousness and sensation, it suffers acutely during its transformation. Only he who has tasted the bitterness of evil can fully realize the sweetness of good. Only he who has suffered the heat of the day can fully appreciate the cool of the evening breeze. He who has lived for ages in darkness will know the true value of light when he enters its realm. He who has been buried in illusions will rejoice when he rises up into real knowledge. What is true in regard to individual man is equally true in regard to humanity as a whole. Christ, the divine principle in the kingdom of spirit, impelled by the divine love that radiates from the center of the all, eternally descends into the hearts of mankind to partake of their suffering and to show them the way to perfection. Compared with the ram of the intellect whose power resides in his horns, he is the lamb of wisdom, having no will of his own, but doing the will of the Father. He takes upon his shoulders the sins of the world, for he himself is without sin. He can gain no personal benefit by his descent into matter. Being perfected himself, he needs no further perfection. It is the sins of men and women that induce him to shed his love and light and life into humanity. Being one with humanity, he suffers with all mankind. He suffers with them on account of their sins. And as men and women become conscious of his divine presence, they become aware not merely of their own individual evils, but of the sufferings of humanity as a whole. They begin to suffer with and for each other. They recognize in the Christ principle the universal link that binds them all together into one harmonious whole by the power of infinite love. Realizing their true nature as sons of the eternal God, they die to all that is animal and low, and the more they die to the latter, the more will they become alive in the spirit, wherein exists the only true, real, and immortal life. The motto of the ancient Rosicrucian fraternity was in Deo nascimor in Jesu morimor revivissimus per spiritum sanctum. That is to say, their souls, like those of all other men, were born from the universal fountain of all good. They died to their semi-animal natures by entering into the spiritual body, the spiritual church of Christ, and becoming one with the Christ spirit. They gained eternal life by being penetrated, illuminated, and glorified by its divine light. Their church had nothing whatever to do with any external church organization. The temple wherein their spirits met and held holy communion of thought was the universal temple of the Holy Ghost, representing love, wisdom, and sanctity, and they symbolized it by a circle representing the sphere of thought, wherein Mercury, intelligence, and Venus, love, were joined together. This conjunction of the principle of love and intelligence within the soul of man constitutes the true Rosicrucian and Adept. It is not to be obtained by any external ceremonies and rites, but by the entire sacrifice of the self-will of semi-animal man to the eternal will of God, whereby the lower self is rendered inactive and helpless as if it were nailed upon a cross, while the divine self of man becomes revealed in its own light. 
Of these real Rosicrucians, no history can be written, because they have nothing to do with external things, but live in eternity. Note of late, the most grotesque and fabulous stories about the Rosicrucians have been put into circulation, and some enterprising publishers have brought out books about their ceremonies and rites. All such speculations are based upon the mistaken idea that the Rosicrucians were a certain sect or organization going by that name, and being bound together by some creed or belief and using external ceremonies and signs. There is no doubt that some such secret societies existed, calling themselves Rosicrucians, and some such are still in existence. They have, however, nothing in common with the true Rosicrucian principle. No more than the Christ spirit has anything to do with the organization of some so-called Christian sect. He in whom the Christ lives is a real Christian, not he who merely professes a belief in him with his mouth. Likewise, he who lives in the light that shines from the center of the cross is a Rosicrucian, and not he who merely belongs to a sect by that name. A true Christian can only be known by his acts, and, likewise, there is no need for the true Rosicrucian to use passwords and signs for the purpose of making himself known. The only sign by which the brothers recognize each other is the light of the truth. These ideas are not new. They have not come into existence with the advent of modern Christianity. They are eternal truths, as old as the world, and they have been represented in various fables and allegories among the nations of this globe. In the Old Testament, we find the doctrine of salvation represented in the story of Noah's Ark. Noah represents the spiritual man, and the Ark, the spiritual church. Only those elements of the psychic organism of man which enter the spiritual realm are saved, while those who remain in a lower state are doomed to destruction. Upon the waters of thought floats the ship containing many compartments. The window of knowledge is open to enable the divine man to look out upon the watery waste. The intellectual raven is sent out to discover dry land, but it can find no place to rest and returns to the ark. The dove of spiritual intelligence alone can find solid ground in the realm of the spirit. She returns with the emblem of peace, the doubts recede, and the ark is turned into a temple resting upon the top of the mountain of knowledge. Blessed is he whose ark, during his terrestrial life, is guided upon this Ararat of faith. It will enable him patiently and with indifference to bear the ills of terrestrial life until the soul is released from her bonds and returns to her home in the eternal kingdom, having become separated from all the attractions of matter. After this separation, Isis, the goddess of nature, the mother of his body, an ever-immaculate virgin, Mary, will take care of her son. The life principle which was active in him during his earthly existence will be laid in a new sepulchre, wherein was man yet never yet laid. It will be transferred and embodied in new vegetable or animal forms. Entering again into the wheel of transformation and evolution, it may help to produce grain and assist in the growth of the grape. Hidden in bread and wine, it may again enter the human form, but the soul, having partaken of the immortal life of the spirit, will have become self-existent in God and suffer no further migrations. 
He who partakes of material food enters into communion with the life principle of nature, while he who assimilates his nature with the spiritual principle becomes one with the spirit that constitutes his higher self, communicates with the real Christ. In the ancient mysteries, the ceremony called the Transfiguration and Communion was performed in a similar manner as it is now taking place in the Christian churches. The initiator presented bread and wine to the candidates before the final revelation was made. This ceremony represents the descent of the spirit into matter, by which the soul is at once nourished with the bread of life, and stimulated into a higher kind of spiritual activity by the wine of divine love, and its efficacy will be proportionate to the receptivity of the mind of the candidate. The great Christian mystic Jakob Böhme says, What we eat or drink affects merely the physical body, but does not affect the spirit. That which the ceremony symbolizes exteriorly must take place interiorly, else the ceremony will be of no use. Those who wish to commune with the Spirit must rise up to it in their thoughts. The high will not come down to mingle with that which is low. Thus it seems that the original Christian allegory was intended to describe an occult process which must have been known long before the establishment of the external Christian church. It is based upon a universal law of nature, and as such it must have existed as long as humanity existed. The Indian yogi, who, by the practice of yoga, unites his lower self with his higher self. The Brahmin, who by meditation and study merges his atma with the universal parabrahm. The Buddhist, who attempts to annihilate his lower self, that his formless self may be absorbed in nirvana, all follow the same process. But the ignorant, whether they call themselves Brahmins, Buddhists, Christians, or anything else, and who look upon the allegorical representations of natural and supernatural forces described in pictures and books as being the images of existing personal deities, are idolaters. How much more grand and sublime is practical Christianity than the mere theoretical Christianism of our times? Jesus of Nazareth, whether he existed or not, represents the ideal man whose example we ought to follow. Without being a true follower of the ideal Christ, a belief in a person can be of no value. How superior is knowledge to mere opinion and belief? How infinitely greater the living Spirit of Christ to a mere belief in the historical person whose memory is worshipped by those who cling to external symbols and cannot rise up to a realization of spiritual facts. Why do men close their eyes and grope in darkness while they are surrounded by light? Why do they cling to death when the door of immortal life is open before them? Those who cling to external symbols without knowing the meaning of the latter cling to illusion. To convert an ignorant person by substituting one form of illusion for another is useless, and the money and labor expended for such conversions is wasted. Ignorance exchanged for ignorance remains ignorance still. A change of opinion cannot establish conviction, and a pretense to knowledge does not make a man wise. If a man knows the truth, it matters little by what name he may call it, or under what form he may attempt to express that which cannot be made into form. The Buddhist who looks upon the image of Buddha 
as a figurative representation of a living principle and who, in memory of a once living person in whom that principle found its fullest expression and whose example he wishes to follow, offers flowers and fruits at this shrine, is as near to the truth as the Christian who sees in the picture of Jesus of Nazareth the representation of his highest ideal. There had been a great deal of time and labor spent to prove or disprove that the founder of Christianity was a person living in Palestine at the beginning of the Christian era. To know whether or not such a person by the name of Jesus, or perhaps Joshua, ever existed, and whether he existed at the time indicated by theologians may be a matter of great historical interest, but it cannot be of supreme importance for the salvation of man, because persons are only forms and as such they are limited in parts of the whole, and the whole cannot subordinate to the part. If the man described as Jesus in the New Testament lived, he was undoubtedly an adept, and as such he was a true son of God, because everyone in whom the Spirit of God awakens to consciousness is a son of God and an incarnation of the Word. Revelation 20, verse 7. For all we know, he may have been the most perfect incarnation of the spirit of truth that ever existed, but the truth existed before the person was born, and it is not the belief in the person that can save mankind from evil, but the recognition of the truth of which the outer form can be nothing else but the external expression. Those who believe in the still-living eternal spirit of Christ, whether they believe in his person or not, are the true worshippers. But those who do not follow his words, but believe in his person, worship only a form without life, an illusion. The doctrines of the Jesus of the Gospels grow in sublimity in proportion as their secret meaning is understood. The tales of the Bible in regard to his deeds and the miracles which he performed, and which to the superficial observer appear incredible and absurd, represent eternal truths and psychological processes which are not merely things of the past, but which occur even now within the realm of the soul of man, and in proportion as man ceases to be a Christian and comes nearer to Christ. Veil after veil drops from his eyes, and a new life awakens in him, and a new and infinite vista of thought rises up before his astonished eyes. The theory of the redemption of man does not date from the time when the historical Christ is supposed to have been born. The history of Christ finds its prototype in the history of Krishna. The Greeks taught the redemption of the soul under the allegory of Amor and Psyche. Psyche, the human soul, enjoys the embraces of her divine lover, Amor, the sixth principle, every night. She feels his divine presence and hears the voice of intuition in her heart. But she is not permitted to see the source from which that voice proceeds. At a time when the god is sleeping, when the voice of her intuition is silent, her curiosity awakes and she wishes to see the god. She lights the lamp of the intellect and proceeds to examine critically the source of her happiness. But at that moment, the god disappears because the clouds and illusions created by her lower intellectual powers hide the higher spiritual truths from view. Despairingly, she wanders through the lower regions of her emotions and through the sphere of sensual perceptions. She cannot find her god by the power of reasoning from the material plane. 
Ready to die, she is saved by the power of her love for her Redeemer that attracts her to him. She follows that attraction and becomes united with him, no more unconsciously, but conscious and knowing his attributes, which are now her own. Modern Christianity has not destroyed the Olympian gods. They were allegorical representations of truths, and truths cannot be killed. The laws of nature are the same today as they were at the time of Tiberius. Christianism has only changed with symbols and called old things by new names, and the dead heathen gods have been resurrected in the form of Roman Catholic saints. Modern writers have represented the same old truths in other forms, in prose and in verse. Goethe, for instance, represents it beautifully in his Faust. Dr. Faust, the man of great intellect and celebrated for his learning, in spite of all his scientific accomplishments, is unable to find the truth. Quote, the unknown is the useful thing to know. That which we know is useless for our purpose. Despairing at the impotency and insufficiency of intellectual research, he enters into a pact with the principle of evil. By its assistance he attains wealth, love, and power. He enjoys all that the senses are capable to enjoy, still feeling intuitively that selfish enjoyment cannot confer true happiness. Neither the splendor of the imperial court nor the beauty of Helen of Troy, who returns from the land of shadows at his request, nor the orgies of the Bloxburg where all human passions are let loose without restraint, can satisfy his craving for more. Lord of the earth, he sees only a single hut, which is not yet his own, and he takes even that, regardless of the fate of its inhabitants. Still he is not satisfied until, after having recovered a part of the land from the ocean by his labors, he contemplates the happiness which others may enjoy by reaping the benefit of his work. This is the first unselfish thought that takes root in his mind. It fills him with extreme happiness, and in the contemplation of the happiness of others, his personality dies and his higher self becomes glorified and immortal. Truth knows that it is, but it cannot intellectually and critically examine itself unless it steps out of itself, and stepping out of itself it ceases to be one. The eye cannot see itself without the aid of a mirror. Good becomes only known to us after we have experienced evil. To become wise, we must first become foolish and eat the forbidden fruit. An impersonal power, not having been embodied in a form, would know that it exists, but would know nothing more. To learn the conditions of existence, it becomes embodied in form and acquires knowledge. Having gained that knowledge, form is no longer required. The desire for personal existence imprisons the spirit of man into a mortal form. He who, during his life on earth, conquers all desire for personal existence becomes free. The divine Buddha, resting under the Bodhi tree of wisdom, and having his mind fixed on the chain of causation, said, Ignorance is the source of all evil. From ignorance spring the sankharas, tendencies of the threefold nature productions of body, of speech and thought during the previous life. From the sankhara spring relative consciousness. From consciousness spring name and form. From this the six regions, the six senses, 
from this springs desire, from desire attachment, from attachment existence, birth, old age, death, grief, lamentation, suffering, dejection, and despair. By the destruction of ignorance, the sankharas are destroyed, and their consciousness, name and form, the six regions, contact, sensation, desire, attachment, existence, and its consequent evils. From ignorance spring all evils. From knowledge comes cessation of this mass of misery. The truly enlightened one stands dispelling the hosts of illusions like the sun that illuminates the sky. The power which diffuses the sense of personality is the same which caused the existence of man. It is the power of love, and the more the love of a person expands over all others, the more will the consciousness of personality be diffused. We esteem a person according to the degree in which he prefers common interests to the interests of his own personality. We admire generosity and unselfishness and benevolence, and yet such qualities are absurd and useless if we believe that the highest object of man's existence is his own personal happiness on the physical plane, because the highest happiness in that plane consists in the greatest amount of possessions pertaining to that plane. To give is to experience a personal loss. But if the man strives for impersonal power, to give away personal possessions will be his gain, because the less he is attracted to personal possessions, the more he will expand his personality. To give, with the view of expecting some benefit in return, is useless for such a purpose, because a person having such an object in view simply gives up one personal possession for another. He is a tradesman that clings to his goods and is only willing to part with something good provided he can get something better in exchange. Neither the white nor the black magician has any such personal considerations. The inveterate villain does not obey his selfish emotions, but controls them and creates emotions in others which they cannot resist, and in this way he makes others accomplish his purpose. He hates whom he chooses to hate. And his will, if directed against the person he hates, is freighted with evil. His touch may bring disease, and his evil eye may be poisoned to persons who, having very little willpower of their own, are unwilling to resist its influence. The emotions which he calls forth attract to themselves corresponding elements. He enters into cooperation with the evil forces of the astral plane, whom he either commands or propitiates, or he makes a compact with them by gratifying their evil desires and invoking their aid. Instead of expanding his powers, he concentrates them into a focus. His will is rather forcible than powerful and is sometimes rendered so by certain practices, such as the careless endurance of physical pain, and by such ceremonies as may assist his imagination. The energies which he accumulates in his astral body may continue to exist long after the death of his physical body, until they are exhausted by suffering and disintegrated into the astral plane. He opposes his individual will to the cosmic will, and the result is isolation and death. The white magician strengthens and expands his willpower by bringing it into harmony with the universal will. Not to counteract, but to assist the process of evolution is his object. And as the progress of the evolution in nature is towards unity, the first manifestation of his will is a universal love for humanity. 
and each act by which he expresses this love strengthens his will. To unite one's will with the universal will does not mean a merely passive contemplation and perception of spiritual truths, but an act of penetration into the process of evolution and a real cooperation with the beneficent powers and master builders of the sidereal universe. Such a union is not produced by an inactive acquiescence with the decrees of an inexorable fate and patient indifference to whatever may happen, much less by a submission of one's will to the dictates of another person who claims to be furnished with divine authority, but by a strong determination to accomplish whatever is in our power for the good of humanity and by expressing that determination through action. A man may surrender his will to the will of another man, if he believes the latter to be more wise than himself, and by doing so he may become strong in mastering his own self, but he should never surrender his reason and never act contrary to the dictates of his conscience. The convent discipline of the Middle Ages may have been conducive to strengthen the willpower of those that were subjected to it, but it was destructive to reason, and instead of gods, imbeciles were created. According to the unselfishness and the spiritual power of a person, his individual influence may extend over a family, a village, a town, a country, or over the whole earth. Everyone desires influence and seeks to obtain power by obtaining wealth and position, but the influence gained by such possessions is not individual power. A fool may be a pope, a king, or a millionaire, and people may bow in obedience before him on account of his position and wealth. They may despise his person and adore his possessions, which he himself adores, and to which his person is as subject as the lowest one of his slaves. Such a person is not a commander. It is his wealth that commands him and the others. His wealth in such a case is the reality, and he himself an illusion. When his wealth is squandered, his own personality disappears, and those who used to crouch at his feet may spurn him away from their table. The spiritual powers of a person is independent of such artificial aids. A virtuous person is esteemed in proportion as his qualities become known, and the spiritually strong exerts a powerful influence over all his surroundings. To this class belong all those who have risen above the crowd by the power of their own will and intelligence, and not in consequence of merely external circumstances, such as are conveyed by birth, money, or favoritism. It is the internal qualities of a man and not merely his external possessions that are constituting his virtue. Opposed to love is hate. Hate is love reversed. It is the opposite pole of the same power that in its manifestation for good is called love, and in its manifestation for evil is named hate. Hate, like love, is an impersonal power and the being whose consciousness of personality is merged into hate becomes himself an impersonal power for evil, and as such he may cause evil. 
His impersonal self may be, to a certain extent, as powerful for evil as the impersonal self of him who employs his faculties for good. But at the end, when the tension between the two poles will have reached its natural limits, the law of justice will prevail with the good. The reason why love must prevail over hate is because love being associated with wisdom is stronger than hate. Love unites and attracts all. It even converts hate into love by the power of truth. Hate disunites and repulses. Love is related to wisdom, and hate is based on ignorance. Both are enduring and independent of form, but only that which is good and wise is immortal. Wisdom is therefore the true redeemer of good, and at the same time the destroyer of evil. Love, acting from the center to the periphery, destroys the consciousness of personality, and elevates the soul over the attraction of the earth, expanding the limits of its activity as it increases in power. Tending downwards from the periphery to the center, it produces form, personality, selfishness, unconsciousness, and death. Awakening again in the form, it expands and grows again, and attracting the most refined and spiritual elements of the form within itself, it saves them from the tomb of matter and resurrects them from the form. Man may be compared with a planet revolving around its own center. Above the orbit in which he turns is light, below it darkness. But his own personality is crystallized in the center. The light above and the darkness below attract him, and both are filled with life and strong power. Only in the center is the material form, held together by the cohesion of selfish attractions, rendered unconscious and immovable by its density, chilled by its remoteness from the spiritual sun. The farther he travels from that center, the more will he approach the light or the shadow. And having reached a certain point at which the attraction of his personal self ceases, he will either rise up to the source of light or sink into the shadow, according to his tendencies, which lead him to permanent good or to permanent evil. A change from darkness to light, from evil to good, is only possible as long as man, in his revolutions around the center of his own self, has not transcended the orbit where the attraction of self ceases, and where the attraction of light and shadows counteract each other. Having transcended that orbit, no return is possible. He is then committed the unpardonable sin which only the impersonal man can commit, because personal man, being bound to a form, and under the influence of love for self, is not free to act as he pleases. As long as he clings to self, he acts ignorantly and under the pressure of selfish considerations. Mistaking the low for the high, he clings to the low and perishes with it. Only he who has attained the knowledge of self will be able to choose free, because he will know the nature of that which he chooses. The blind have no freedom of choice. Only at the end, when all will have attained knowledge and freedom, will be the final resurrection of humanity as a whole, the parting of light and shadow, and the restoration of good. Then will be the day of judgment, referred to in the revelation of St. John, when after the ending of the seventh round of the life wave around the planetary chain, the bottomless pit will be opened, and the good and evil will part.
but no personal judge may be there, nor any persons that could be judged, but only the power of good and evil, of which former personalities constitute an integral part and the power of the law. Revelation 20, verse 1. The unpardonable sin is to knowingly and willfully reject spiritual truth. In a certain sense, all sins are unpardonable, because they all cause effects which have to become exhausted before they can cease. But if a person knowingly and willfully, without any selfish considerations, rejects the truth, it proves that he has a determinate preference for evil, that he loves evil better than good, and that he is therefore amalgamated with evil. He who is ignorant is not responsible for his acts, but he who knows the truth and rejects it will suffer its loss. Only the good will survive, and he who chooses evil will perish in evil. It is therefore dangerous for men to acquire occult knowledge before they have become sufficiently wise to select only that which is good. Man passes through several resurrections. His life principle resurrects in the plants growing on his grave, and in the worms feeding upon his body. His astral soul resurrects from the body, his true self from the elementary forces connected with the activity of his soul. Besides these resurrections, there are continually resurrections taking place within the soul of man. There is the resurrection from selfishness to a true realization of truth, the resurrection from ignorance to knowledge, and his liberation from the attraction of evil. Good and evil will finally resurrect from the form, the good a blessing and the evil a curse. But the ignorant that know neither good nor evil will have no resurrection because they have no spiritual life. They will remain chained to the form and sleep crystallized in space and, quote, live not again until the thousand years are finished, when they may again begin their labor of developments at the commencement of a world. But he that is will still sit upon the great white throne after the earth and the heaven have fled away from his face, and the powers of good, the sons of wisdom, over which the second death has no power, will be with him as priests and kings. When after the pralea is ended, he stretches forth his hands and commands again, let there be light. All right, all right, all right, folks, that is the book, except for a conclusion, it turns out. There is a conclusion, and it's very, very long. Um, what I'm going to do is record that as well now, before the uh, visual chip thing on this computer fully conks out, uh, which it will, they say again, very soon. And So if you can support the podcast by donation uh, to help me uh, keep this shit going, and uh, I'm temporarily, I'm lowering a sale, summer sale, yes, from now till the end of August, the annual uh, subscription to the podcast is only 20 bucks, which will help me get a new computer and that sort of thing, and also gets you access to bonus content, ad-free free content, and, and a bunch of other things to do with the podcast. Uh, access to a private page on the website, magicwithoutfears.com or hermeticpodcast.com. They both go to the same page, but... Facebook keeps banning my URLs as well as other people due to people flagging it. Probably Christian fundamentalists who think that, you know, we're all evil. <laughs> but whatever. So you can uh, go to magicwithoutfears.com uh, or hermeticpodcast.com and find the link to subscribe. 
Um, it's 20 bucks for the year right now. It's still 6 bucks a month, I believe, but just 20 and you get a year of mostly ad-free and bonus content, including the exciting conclusion of this wonderful book by Dr. Franz Hartman, one of the co-founders of the original OTO, along with Theodore Roos and all of that crew. Um, and you can hear it right away. I'll upload that right away. Um, so if you go and do that, you'll get the conclusion, which is very cool. It is all uh, based on to know, to dare, to will and be silent. And then some other great stuff where he really lets you know what he thinks. And it's interesting. I hope you've enjoyed this journey with me because it is a historical work. You should remember that. Um, don't take it all at its word, but what I think you might find as, as well as I did, I, haven't, I, I adored this book in 97 when I read through it. Uh, as a high school student in Vienna and uh, it was really mind-opening at that age and to read it again now as a 40 year old is quite quite interesting there's some things actually that seem that are more relevant than ever especially the stuff from this chapter and the next one and uh, just like almost like he's commenting on our current situation if you know what I mean it's crazy and then there's some stuff that is really obviously outdated because you know things have changed since the 19th century and <laughs> uh, especially in medical science and, and physics, which he was familiar with. But again, uh, it's not for me to say what, a, what is good and what is bad in this text, but um, find uh, to figure it out for yourself. Um, the final concluding chapter, he, he, he talks about the witchery performed by priests of the pulpit as a, this kind of uh, evil spreading of Christian thought by using the term witchery. Like, you know, we wouldn't do that today, but witches and Wicca and the whole witch movement we have today didn't exist then at all. And there wasn't witches floating around. I mean, sorry, traditional British witchcraft people. I mean, there, so there were, but there also weren't, if you know what I mean. I mean, you can read Hutton or any of the other PhDs who have covered that sort of academic history if you want. And, of course, there's always been people practicing magic. That's a fact. Um, and usually, like uh, Dr. Skinner reminds us, it was never in organizations or formal structures, but usually passed on teacher to student and uh, amongst a very small collection of the serious magicians, which is really what most occult groups yield anyway, is, is a few serious practitioners who, over the course of decades, show their adepthood rather than the ones who simply go through ceremonies to grab titles and, and uh, you know, get by on their laurels that's not how how it works unfortunately so yeah i hope you've enjoyed this um it was a it was a journey i didn't expect to do it but uh popular demand pushed me through and carried me through on the wings of light so here we are at the end of this road together um you can of course just download a, a, this book because it's uh, well out of copyright and uh, read the last conclusion for yourself. So I'm not. Don't feel like you're missing out on my reading of the conclusion by not having twenty bucks to spare. And, and soon I'll put all of these uh, segments together as a little downloadable ebook, your audio book for like a couple bucks on my HermeticMysterySchool.com, which. Uh, I do weekly classes at and a free monthly cyber guild lecture for all who can attend. And of course that is free. Um, the weekly classes aren't, but the monthly free lecture is. So that's what I'm up to. Um, busting ass this month. I have a great release of uh, some content on hermeticmysteryschool.com for Lunasa to surprise all of my uh, fairy pagan, fairy wicca, Celtic mystery folk who have been excited to uh, see something concrete come out that they can take into their practice so that will be an exciting thing for august 1st and uh 
yeah more to come thank you very much for all your support it's been a, an incredible journey so far and i look forward to the future Hermetic Science Enterprises is a publishing company based in Scotland, UK, that specializes in Western esoteric printed literature as well as educational videos. With various imprints under its belt, its roster consists of grimoire tradition literature, alchemical works, Golden Dawn tradition books, and the several texts and videos originally belonging to the philosophers of nature. Besides its downloadable videos and standard hardcover edition books, Hermetic Science Enterprises also produces beautiful and precious limited fine edition books that are true pieces of art. For more information to order any of its products, please visit www.hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk. That's hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk. And as a lot of you know, I've uh, talked with the publisher Lenny on the podcast before, including a six-hour epic uh, extended version on the Patreon, and uh, seen the fine edition of his new grimoire of Scott's Discovery of Witchcraft, which is only available for purchase up to 50 limited copies uh, till the end of May, I believe. So check it out now. Hermetic Science Enterprises.co.uk